E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Joe Rocchioli Jr. of the J. Rocchioli Winery in the Russian River Valley of California. Hello, sir. How are you? Good. So your family moved to California in the early 1900s. Yes, my dad moved in in this with his family in 1902. You were born in 1934. Born in 34. What was California like when you were a kid? When we were young, we didn't get around very much, but we lived pretty much on the ranch. And it was uh, totally different than what it is today. Uh, you know, there was old farmers, they were all hop growers, and some had some vineyards, but the hop fields were a big thing then, and they had kids, but the kids moved on because there wasn't very much money to be made in hops. Your dad had worked as a hops farmer. Yeah, my dad was a hop farmer, and he was a good one. We leased the property in those days from a lady called Adelma Walters Fenton. But her maiden name was Walters. And then she married a, a Fenton, who was the Fenton family is known for their attorneys in Portland, Oregon. They built the library at the University of Oregon called Fenton Hall. And she married one of the boys when she was younger. And he was an all-American football player and baseball player in Stanford University. And I have his yearbook and his footballs and his baseballs from the years that he played at Stanford. Then they got married and went to Portland, Oregon. And he, he went in to business in the firm that his family owned. And they lived there for, I think, three or four years, and then she came home, back to the ranch. And come to find out, he was suicidal and committed suicide. And Anyway, she had a brother. Her brother and her split the property, and we raised hops till 1953. And then about that time, my dad was able to buy the property from Mrs. Fenton, we call her. And she gave you five acres of land for your birthday? Yeah, and then she gave me five acres and my brother five acres. When I came home from the Army, I didn't have any money. I mean, I was flat broke. You know, Army pay was, I got one hundred and thirty-seven fifty a month. And Tom was born when I was in the Army, my son Tom. But I, my dad knew some people, and uh, he told Mr. Proctor, he says, you know, my son would like to build a home, but he has no money. And Mr. Proctor owned half of Santa Rosa, and he was in the hop business. He told my dad how much he wanted. My dad said, I don't know how much you want. And I said, I don't know, probably 15000 
and just wrote me out a check. He says, you pay me back whenever you can, no interest. So built my own house. Took me three years to do it, but I got it done. And uh, it was up on a hill where I used to chase my cow around. I used to milk two cows, and I used to have to go up in those hills and run them down to the barn. You know, I started doing that when I was 10 years old, and I I used to sit up there once in a while and look out and see, just, you could see clear to Hillsburg. It was a nice view, and uh, thinking that maybe someday I'd like to build a house up there. And so then I got this property, and I built the house. You used to work with your dad with the bags of hops. When I was 10 years old, I picked hops. And I was the world's worst hop picker. I hated it. You know, you sit there and pick berry after berry. And if you can make 100 pounds in one day, then you're really doing something at two cents a pound. <laughs> anyway, that was when I was 10. So then I kept telling my dad that, you know, I'd like to get a man's job, get on the payroll. It's 50 cents an hour. So. Finally, when I was 12, I grew up fast. I was six foot tall, and I wore 12 shoes when I was 12 years old. And my dad gave me a job of what they call high pole, and I had a long pole. And when they pull the hops down, some of the limbs would stay there. Then you'd have to go along with this pole, take them down, and give them to the pickers so they could pick them out. So I did that for two years, and then... When I got into high school, I, I got a job in the hop kilns. You were a good athlete, right? Yeah, I was, uh, was kind of shy and kind of timid. But when I was playing in grammar schools, hitting the softball a mile. And I used to practice in the apple orchard, hitting the apples that were falling on the ground with a stick and I used to throw hit a tree and stuff developing my arm the grammar school I went to uh I couldn't speak any English it was difficult but I you know I made it but they never had any football and I never saw football so when I went into high school my freshman year I had a class from the football coach and it was raining, so I took a shortcut and went through the gym, and they had just finished the gym, so I didn't realize he was behind me, and I slid on the gym floor with my shoes, and I used to put horseshoes on my heels those days, and boy, he was mad. He yelled at me, and I thought he was going to hit me. <laughs> he was really mad. Art McCaffrey, he was a Good man. Anyway, he told me that I was going to get so many demerits and get kicked out of school for three days or do 100 push-ups. Well, I was already working tough. I did 100 push-ups, bang, 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 bang. And he says, you ever think about playing football? <laughs> I says, no, I don't even know what a football is. He says, what if I went out and talked to your dad and got to talk him into letting you play? So he did. So I started playing football. I mean, I, they gave me a uniform. I didn't know how to put it on. But the kids, they helped me put the uniform on. And they were already playing. So I went out. And at calisthenics, I did pretty good. But then it made me take a lap. And I, I couldn't quite make it. So it was difficult. Then I started running through plays, but there was contact. And I never had contact before. <laughs> so my coach says, Rokioli, stand right over here. I'm standing there, you know, wondering what in the hell is going on. You know, and they were going first and 10. I, I, I didn't understand any of that stuff. So I'm standing there and looking around. Pretty soon, some guy by the name of Alvy Rochester, he weighed about 150 pounds. He was a guard, and he pulled and hit me. Oh, I thought I was dead. <laughs> and I says, wow, 
the hell? And then the coach took me out. Then they were still going on. I'm trying to figure this game out. Then finally he says, Rokioli, stand over here. So I'm standing on the opposite side. And this guy, Alvy Rochester, hit me again. And he had a grin on his face, you know. <laughs> I was mad. <laughs> anyway, I ended up playing first string. And then my junior year and senior year, I was first string, all league, both ways, unanimous choice. means that all the coaches voted for me. I was going to go to school, and I was going to go to Davis because it's close by. And some doctor, Dr. Crookshank, came in to our class, FFA class, and gave us a spiel on Cal Poly, why we should go to Cal Poly. And he impressed me so much that I told my dad, I'm going to Cal Poly. Because the motto was learn by doing. And that's, I like that. You know, you take a class and you go out and feel and do it. So I went to Cal Poly. My dad gave me 350 bucks and I took off, went down there and I got two jobs. There's no tuition in those days. And all you had to do was buy a meal ticket. Your dad used to have some French Colombar playing it, right? Yeah, we had French Colombar. You know, when the hops went, we tried beans, and there was no money in the beans. We had very little income. After the hops, we planted 10 acres of beans, and then we had old vineyards. You know, we had vineyards that were planted in 1895 from Solomon Walters, and those vineyards were producing very little, and we were making just barely enough to plant some vineyards. So we planted two rows of beans and then put two rows of vineyard vines in between the beans. And uh, the beans were getting to where we couldn't get any help, no labor. So 1964 was the end of it. But in the meantime, I had an idea that I wanted to get into the grape business. I loved grapes, you know, and I used to prune when I was 10 years old. I helped my dad. I still have the pruning shears, German-made reasers. So I tried to talk my dad into planting some varietals. Oh, no, no. He says, what do you do with varietals? Said, they don't bear. That's a waste of money. So finally, we, I convinced him to plant some French columbard. So we got the bud wood from the neighbor, Vince Colombano, up the road. And he had some vines there, so we got enough bud wood. And the Audubonie brothers in Cloverdale did some budding, so they buttered them. And they took off like crazy. They were huge. I mean, they were spread out all over the rows. You know, there was no more beans. Couldn't plant anything in there because it was so brushy. So we uh, pulled the beans out. Then I wanted to plant another block. My dad had it all disked up and everything. And I wanted to plant Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, but uh, my uncles and my dad says, oh, no, 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 no. And they were right, really, because there was no wineries. You know, the only the bulk wineries only. They were just buying bulk. When you brought something in, it was mixed red or mixed white, and it all went to Gallo. So when we got paid, we got it from Gallo whenever he wanted to pay us. <laughs> I said this on another, this other thing, and you know, everybody says, oh, don't say, mention names. Well, I said it, Vince Colombano said it, and everybody, that we used to get paid just before our taxes, before December the 10th. For grapes we picked in September and October, they were delivered, crushed, probably made into wines, I don't know. <laughs> and we never got paid until December the 10th, and then he paid whatever he wanted. And I didn't like that. So I, you know, we started a little organization called North Coast Grape Growers Association, and we fought open price contracts. 
we thought that was illegal, should be. What you guys fought for was that there should be a written contract with a price before the grapes were delivered. Exactly, which is the law now. So we argued and argued. We started getting, I sold a little bit of grapes to Corbell. I sold some to Wendy. And they paid me a little more than Gallo. So we wanted that printed in Market News Service. They wouldn't print it. They said it's insignificant. But it meant something. So we fought and fought. And we got a, a congressman to sponsor a bill to ban open price contracts. And we went over there to Sacramento, and they thought, my gosh, you guys, you mean you're selling grapes without a price? I said, yeah. It was a committee. Because, okay, well, so we can change that. And there was two people that were Gallo and CPC, California Packing Corporation. They uh, lobbied against it. And so when we went, we thought we had it made. You know, we're going to get this law passed. So we went in to the room to vote. Only two guys showed up. Died from a lack of a quorum. This went right back to where we were. Anyway, we fought it, and, but eventually the state did pass a law saying that when you deliver grapes, you've got to have a contract or an agreement. So what did you find with the early experiments working with French Columbar? You know, we were getting good production, and uh, it was making us a little money. And, and my dad liked it because it was producing. So then I said, what about planting some the next block? And when it was time to get budwood, University of California, I did a lot of work with Casmatis and Leiter. They were big names in the university at that time. So I went over and they showed me that I could take budwood from their Sauvignon Blanc experimental rows. So I took my dad over there, and he saw that it had a huge crop. He says, well, maybe we could plant some of that. The whole block was really loaded. Sauvignon Blanc had a big crop that year. Thank God for that. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I don't know if it had any. So he said, okay. But they weren't ready to bud yet. So when it was time to bud, I had an old 47 Chevy pickup, and I put sideboards on it, and I, my dad couldn't go. So I went by myself. I went over to Davis. And there was about 12 rows with numbers on the end. They were ripe then. So I started tasting those, each one of those rows, and tasting them and tasting them. And I found one row that I really liked. It had a, like a dried fig flavor. It was really something. And I didn't know if it was good or bad. But I took all my budwood off of that row. And we still have that vineyard still producing. I buttered them myself. You know, it took me about five days to do it, but I could bud. I was a butter. You were famous for it, right? Yeah, I was famous for it because I was budding 500 a day, six days a week. I was budding with two famous butters, Enrico Tolini and Mr. Qualia. Qualia was from Napa, Tolini from Cloverdale. And they taught me how to bud, those guys. But they'd only bud about 350 a day, and I was budding 500 a day. I was doing their rows and my rows, you know. So finally, I, I went on my own and said, I'm going to charge by the bud. So I was doing $50 a day instead of 37.50. And you used to go out to other vineyards that your dad didn't oh, know? I budded just about all the vineyards around. You can't believe how many vineyards I budded in Sonoma County. I did a lot of budding. Now I go by and I said, told my wife, see those vines? At one time I budded there. Most of them have been pulled out now. So then I'm still set on 
getting some varietals in some some so in 1952 we planted early burgundies uh, an eight acre block of early burgundies and that's what i wanted to put the pinot noir and my dad said no 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 i wanted a french clone not gamay Beaujolais, you know that that was supposed to be a pinot noir that produced 10 tons to the acre you know it was rosé when you produce 10 tons to the acre you don't get any color, you don't, you know, no quality. So I made up my mind I wanted to get a French clone because I read a little bit when I was in college about the Burgundy area was planting these grapes and they were, were selling for big money. So I thought, hey, that's the thing to do. So I wanted to put them in, but my dad said no. So we put in early burgundies, the worst grape that I think we ever planted. <laughs> and in 1966, my dad passed away. So first thing I did is I had an old tractor. I made a, a shoe that would dig underneath the roots and pull the vines out. And it was raining. It was wet. It had to be because, you know, the ground gets hard. So I went in there, and I worked and worked, and I got all the vines out, eight acres of vines, piled them up and burned them, and then disked it, got it ready, and planted AXR1 rootstock. I looked for a clone of Pinot Noir, a French clone. And when I was on the board of directors of the North Coast Grape Growers, one of the directors in uh, Napa, knew of somebody that had planted some Pomard clone just below St. Helena. So I went, went over there. He took me down there, and there was an old man that came out. And he says, no, 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 I'm not going to let anybody cut on my vines. And we explained to him that I was an old butter, and I knew how to take the wood off the vines without hurting them. And his daughter comes out, and she was starting to take over the ranch. So. She gave me an okay, so I, I got my budwood. I think it was Mr. Mahaley was his name. So anyway, I planted those, and uh, oh, man, for the first few years, I had some beautiful grapes there, but they went into mixed reds, uh, less than 100 or 10. Anyway, that's where Pinot Noir started. Then I put in another clone from Wendy. And when he was giving Budwood away to other growers, but he had a special clone he told me about. I know Carl Wenny well. He's dead. He died young. But he told me that I couldn't have his special one. I said, come on, Carl. <laughs> I'm just going to put in a little four acres. Finally, he gave me some of that Budwood. We planted it. Every time we replanted someplace, I'd mark the stakes with the staples. And if it's a good one, I put one staple on it. If it was a very good one, I put two staples on it. They were permanent. That's where we got our budwood. Then we went to the next field, and we did it again, you know. So now there's people out there call it the Rocchioli clone. It's a little different than some of the others. So the thing about that is, historically... That was some of the first Pinot Noir planted in Sonoma County. Well, there's some claims that Joe Swan, he was the one that uh, was experimenting with varietal Pinot Noirs. He was one of the first. And Botch Klupe claims they put it in before me. And he said, I butted it. I'm not sure about that. It could be true. Working with Sauvignon Blanc and then now working with Pinot Noir, what did you learn working with those grape varieties? Well, what happened is, is these little wineries started building up. Dry Creek Vineyards, one of the first ones. Davis Bynum was one of the first ones. Davis Bynum is the first one to put my name on the bottle and Russian River Valley. 
Well, piano says he was the first one, so you don't know, you know. But it was on a jug wine. So anyway, I had beautiful fruit. The budwood that I got was really excellent, and and I kept it. You know, I used to thin it, take the green bunches off, or rotten bunches, or second crop bunches. You know, it wasn't the money; it was pride. My dad was the same way. He didn't care about the money, but he wanted to be the best. And I wanted to be the best. So I have a lot of money, but you know what? It doesn't mean anything to me. I live in an old house. But anyway, this went on for several years. And then I started getting premium prices for my grapes. I sold Dry Creek the very first Sauvignon Blanc. They didn't even have the winery built yet. I had to haul it to Cuvisan. And Dave Stair and I unloaded it off a of gondola into the crusher. Now, it's hard to believe Dave Stair would do any work, but he did. <laughs> Dave Stair going to hear this? I don't know. <laughs> I saw him the other day. Talked to me. But he started buying from me steady for about six years. Because he became famous for uh, Sauvignon Blanc. He was planting some out there by his winery. And until that came in, uh, he was buying them from me. So then I sold that Sauvignon Blanc to Corbel. I sold to Corbel French Columbars about 30 years. When I first started hauling to Corbel, they didn't even have a, a crusher. Just a little, you had to do one box at a time. And it was uh, amazing how it grew up in a huge buildings going in and crushers, big crushers and big tanks. It got big, real big. But anyway, the Pinot Noir is still my pride and joy. The property's gotten bigger over time, but the original set was the West Block, the East Block. And then you were farming Allen as well, right? Right. Yeah, I've leased Allen since 72. Howard Allen was a very nice person. He always let me do what I want. He told me that he, you do what you want, plant what you want, and sell to whoever you want. So I had that relationship, and finally I got it in writing. So... I could take Allen's grapes and put it in our wine and it'd be estate wines. So anyway, uh, he was a super nice guy, Howard Allen, but he passed away. And he, I also made him famous because, uh, you know, the, the wineries were putting Rocchioli on the, on the label. But I told him, why don't you put Howard Allen's on, on the Chardonnay that, you know, Gary Farrell wines and, and William and Sally Wines buying Chardonnay from Howard Allen and Pinot Noir. Allen is across the creek and across the road from your property. And how do you see the differences between Allen, West Block, East Block, now River Block, Three Corners? The only difference would be that Allen's Pinot Noirs are all on the bench lands. His Chardonnay is next to the river down low. There's 16 acres there. And I started planting that in 1972. I planted Allen Chardonnay, and it's still there. You know, we had the old place leased, had prune orchard on it. Then he wanted to jerk it all out, and we did. And then uh, the three-corner was Allen's at one time. And I did so much for him. His wife says, you know, we owe you something. And so they were going to give me the three-corner. There's three acres of vineyard there. So he come up and told me, he says, we're going to give you that for everything you've done for us. Without you, we wouldn't have made it here. And, you know, they were making money, too. <laughs> so they gave it to me. But... He's got a son that's an attorney who's running the place now. Uh, him and I don't 
see eye to eye, a lot of things. So he came back a week later and told me, he says, you know, I, I was thinking about it. Rather than give it to you, I'll give you a 30-year lease. I said, Howie, you, you gave it to me. I ever told all my friends and everything how nice you were to, you know. Yeah, but uh, we were thinking that it would be better if we gave you a 30-year lease. And, and, uh, and I said, well, then you take it away from me. He says, no. He says, you still have it for 30 years. And I says, no, that's not the same. So they went back and thought about it. I told him, you know what? You know, I, that, that, I just didn't, I didn't like what, what you just did. You know, you know I, I think that's going to ruin our relationship here. And he came back the following week and says, now we're going to give it to you. They made out of all the paperwork. Give me three corner now. But we planted Chardonnay on our property. I cleared some land down by the river, and we put in a block of Chardonnay. Uh, it's called the River Block. And uh, then up on the hill, I planted some way back in seventy. Same time I planted Howard Allen. Was still one block left of the old vineyard. And then we put in uh, a little block on uh, on the Sweetwater property, just over the hill from where Tom's house is, where I, where I used to live. And it's called Rachel's Vineyard. That's his daughter's name. And it's, it's a non-Eden clone, and it's very, very good. That's the best Chardonnay that my wife said it's the best in the world, but he's a little prejudiced, maybe. <laughs> I feel like you've had success with all three of those grape varieties, Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Noir, and Chardonnay. Other people have also shared in that success in terms of wineries who have come to you and sourced fruit, right? Yeah, well, like William and Salyam, they were getting some of the old West Block and making some of the best Pinot Noir in the world. Bert Williams was a good winemaker. Then. After, I think, nine years, they kind of, partners kind of were feuding a little bit. So they sold it to John Dyson. But they came to me and said that, you know, we want to buy it, but are you going to sell us the grapes? And I says, well, I don't know. says, you know. It all depends on a lot of things. You know, I had a good relationship with Bert and Ed. You know, they really treated me good. And so they said, well, we'll treat you good, too. We'll give you top dollar. And if you don't give us an okay to buy your grapes, then we're not going to have a deal. The banks won't let us go through the deal. So I gave him an okay. How did you first meet Burt Williams? Well, we heard about, in Fulton, they had a, just a regular two-car garage. And they had barrels in there, and, and there was a loading chute there for loading discs and tractors and stuff. And we went over there, and they were working away. Never had a lift or nothing. They were rolling the barrels. They'd roll them up on... <laughs> The, the loading chute, then drain them, take them down and wash them. I mean, it was, I sold them the very first grapes. They made it, and it was excellent Pinot Noir. And it was crude, the way they were making it. But they knew what they were doing. You sold to Davis Bynum, and then when Farrell started his own wine, you sold to Gary Farrell. Yeah, I started selling Davis Bynum in 73. He was one of the first wineries around. So Davis Bynum, you know, he used to live in Berkeley, and he'd come up two to three days a week. And he had his son running it for a while and uh, wasn't getting the best of care. So he hired Gary Farrell. 
Gary Farrell's a good winemaker. I'd bring grapes down there. He'd take care of them and everything. Before, I would bring some the most prettiest grapes you ever saw down there, putting them down in bins, and they'd been to stay overnight. Guys are in a tasting room drinking and getting knockered up. And I was mad, and I didn't have bins to pick the next day. And Finally, Davis Bynum came up, boy, and he was mad. He shook everybody up and fired a bunch of people. And uh, then he got Gary Farrell in. And after Gary Farrell come in, everything went smooth. He was one of the top winemakers in the area. I just saw him Saturday night. Now he's working on old cars. When you decided to start your own winery, you started making some wine under the Fenton Acres label at Davis Bynum, right? Yes. I had two partners, and the three of us started this Fenton Acres label. That was the name of the ranch since 1926, when Mrs. Fenton came back from Oregon. And... That went on for a while, and we were making a thousand cases of each, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And then all of a sudden, uh, these guys, they had other interests. You know, one guy was working on a sailboat in Marin County, and the other one had property over in Ketchum, Idaho. He was building apartments. And, you know, here I was stranded with all this wine. It was hard to sell in those days. You know, we didn't have a name or the wines were pretty good. You know, down at Davis Bynum, the, they got neglected. Davis Bynum's was supposed to make the wine. We bought new barrels. We bought a couple of tanks and everything. And uh, God, I went down there one day and I saw film on the wine was down about this much in the barrels. And, and it was awful. But we got a bronze medal at the Harvest Fair, so it's better than nothing, I guess. Then, all of a sudden, they had these other interests, these guys. And Tom comes along, my son Tom. He was working at, in corporate banking at Bank of America. And he hated his job. And he comes to me and said, Dad, is there anything that I can do on a ranch? Well, on the ranch, no. You know, I could handle that easily. But that winemaking thing was uh, something I needed help with. So I said, once you put together a 10,000-case winery and do all the numbers, he had a degree in business and accounting. So he comes back with it looked too good for me. He said, there's something wrong here. Nothing but money, you know. So I chopped it up a little bit, and it still looked good. So I said, okay, I want to take you in as a partner, and I'm going to get rid of the other partners. Oh, they were mad. <laughs> they were really upset. I told them, I said, you know, you guys are not doing nothing. What do you want to be a partner for? We'll divide the wines up. You take your share, and we'll go from there. Took Tom in, never had one class in viticulture. And we hired Gary Farrell for one year to help set up the tanks and stuff. Then Tom just kind of walked around with Gary Farrell and listened, and I could not believe how much he learned. You know, he was he's using terminology that uh, and I, I've been, I, I was making wines when I was a young man for my family in the back of the barn. I was making 300 gallons a year for, for the family. So he really learned fast. So after one year, we said, well, I don't think we need Gary Farrell anymore. And then Tom's been the winemakers now, what, since 1985. I give Tom a lot of credit. You know, if it wasn't for Tom, I, I wouldn't be here today. <laughs> Not in the wine business, anyway. In terms of farming, Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Noir, and Chardonnay, what were some of the things that you learned in the early years that kind of stuck with you? Well, particularly the Sauvignon Blanc, we didn't realize that it was very vigorous. 
And when it grew, I mean, it looked like a jungle. We call it the jungle today. The Mexicans all call it the jungle. And uh, it was, the rows were 14 foot apart. And the brush was all tangled up. You couldn't even drive down the row. So what happened was that when it had grapes on it, the sunshine never got in there. And so it was cane pruned. And then we put two canes on each side, and the, and the canes, you couldn't even get in there to cut the bunches off. They were tangled up in there, so it was awful. And the brush was awful. And then they were shaded out the wood, so they didn't store up any carbohydrate in the wood. And it got punky for the following year when you put canes out. There were spots on the canes that didn't produce anything. So I, the university says you put one cane and all your canes on the bottom wire. This is a two-wire system. Then you leave the top wire as the catch wire. Just shade the grapes. Well, with the Sauvignon Blanc, I didn't need to shade the grapes. I needed the wire to put the canes on. So I started putting the canes on the top wire and the bottom wire. Four canes. So that would be like vertical shoot positioning, right? Yeah. That would be similar to that, right? That idea? Yeah. So then they had a meeting, and they told me that what you're doing is wrong. The university doesn't recommend it. But he said, if we can go to the meeting, I want you to tell them how you do it. And Dale Good was a friend of mine. He did it the right way. Of Murphy Good. Yeah, Murphy Good. He was partner in there, yeah. Super nice guy. He's dead now. But... So I got up there and I showed him how I was doing it, you know. And next thing I know, you drive down the road and look at these pruning. They're all using that top wire. And about 10 years later, university come out and recommended to use the top wire because it was a lot of vigor and you, don't, you didn't need to worry about sunburn. So then, you know, we started pulling leaves through the middle of the, on the shady side, not where the afternoon sun hits them. So you were pulling in the fruit zone on one yeah, side. Yeah, the fruit zone on one side, on the, on the east side. You get in the morning sun, but not the late afternoon hot sun. So then next thing I know, more people were doing it. And it made sense. If you do it early, the vines get adjusted to the heat, and they won't sunburn. But if you wait too late and pull it, then you get burnt maybe in the grapes or something like that. So you got to do it at the right time. So the skins themselves kind of develop a sensitivity yeah, if they, you do it they early. Do. Yeah. And what did you learn about dropping fruit? Yeah, that's the other thing. Uh, you know, we learned like, some years, Pinot Noir, you don't have to worry too much about them. But some years, they put on a pretty good crop, you know. And, well, sometimes I go through there four or five times. Go through first, get the side crop off, then go through again and get bunches that are thick, you know, thin them out a little bit. We go through again sometimes and get the greener bunches and start to get verasion. We go and get the, the ones that are still way behind, cut them out. Then we go through again. If they start to show a little rot or something, take it off, especially the whites. So, you know, it's, it's a never-ending job. I've got, right now, I think I've got 12 or 14 guys working, a couple of ladies, and i got a huge labor bill. It's more than half my income. But I get the highest price probably of anybody. So I can afford to keep my crop down to two tons the acre. Sometimes we make two and three quarters, but very seldom over three. You must have seen a lot of changes in the Russian River in terms of people planting more and more grapes, right? Oh, yeah. We're still seeing it. Next to us, there are six wineries within a mile of where I live. The land prices went up out of sight, and now these rich people coming in, billionaires, buying 
no matter what, they just buy it. It's in the Russian River Valley, particularly in the what we call the Middle Reach. When we first started, we thought the Russian River Valley was from Dry Creek to the Waller Bridge. Davis Bynum and I and even Full Piano thought that was the Russian River Valley. Which is like a 10-mile stretch, right? Yeah. But now, Russian River Valley Appalachian, as big as there is, is clear to Petaluma. We tried, well, we talked about it, to maybe get another Appalachian for the middle reach. But nobody wants to instigate it, and I don't think the government would allow it. What do you see as the characteristics of that kind of 8 to 11-mile area that you're in? Oh, you can tell. I mean, you know, I know that on our wines, there's a particular nose that comes off of that wine that you don't get in other areas. There's kind of a red fruit signature often for me for Russian River Valley Pinot. Kind of a, there's a pungency of red fruit to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, well, I do too. You get some fog in your area, right? Yeah, we have fog. That's one of the, you know, keeps the grapes cool at night. And it comes up the river as far as the Dry Creek, probably, where Dry Creek dumps into the Russian River. And, that, and that's a good thing, those foggy nights. Then the days get up in the 80s, and, you know, that's good for the grapes. So that actually provides for diurnal temperature variation, the fog. It keeps the acidity because. It actually lowers the temperature at night. That's right. But that must be tough for moisture on the grapes sometimes, right? Does the fog? Oh, yeah, that, that's true. Yeah, that's when, the, you know, the, the right grapes will mildew if you're not careful. So that's why we got a, a real strict spray program. So that, that fog will make mildew. The spores really multiply. So... We don't go past two weeks without spraying, sometimes 10 days. It's, uh, they have what they call mildew pressures. You know, we have instruments that measure the mildew pressure. If you get mildew pressures up around the 100 and it stays for a while, you better get back in there within 10 days or else you're going to get some mildew. So... We, you know, we're on top of that. So we have instruments in the field that tells you everything. We have one up in the hill, one down in the flat that uh, measures the temperatures, the rainfalls, the mildew pressures, mildew spores, stuff like that. What are issues that you used to have to deal with in the 70s that are less relevant now? You know, when I was a kid, we had about 30 acres of old vines, Alicani, Granor, Petit Syrah, Malvasia, some of these varieties. And I used to, when I was a young kid, I used to help sulfur. We put sulfur in a, in a barley sack and just puff it over the top of a vine. We do that twice a year and never did anything else. Now, the sprayers are running every two weeks. It's, it's unbelievable. And the insects, we never had insects in those days. I don't know what's, what the heck, you know, and viruses. We had a little bit of virus in those days, a leaf roll virus. Now we got red blotch. They said that leaf roll virus cannot be spread except by propagation. You take it off of one vine, you can put it on another. But if you don't have it, you got a clean vine, you can put it on a clean rootstock, and you won't get it. Well, now i got red blotch, and all the vines are getting it, you know, it's spreading by, they don't even know. So a three-nose alfalfa something, they don't know what's causing the red blotch. And we had our vines tested. We found four or five vines that never had red blotch. So we propagated those, and we have 75 vines now that are clean from red blotch. 
and we're taking our, all our budwood off of that for our new plantings. Have there been other challenges that have developed through the decades so in California grape growing? Uh, well, you know, there's not too many challenges because it's pretty lucrative right now. Everybody's trying to get into it, and everybody is. Let me tell you, that's, the rich people have taken it over. We have a road going back the hills behind us, Sweetwater Springs Road. When I was a kid, I used to ride a lot of horses. We'd run up and down that road. It was all dirt. Now there's homes going in everywhere. The one ranch was 2,000 acres. It was a sheep ranch. It's been split up I don't know how many ways now. And they're building multi-million dollar homes. And the traffic is something else. Now they paved some of it. You know, it's just a big building. One guy built a house next to us down there. Nine rooms, nine bedrooms. The monstrosity. It looks like a hotel. They took the old farmhouse that a friends of mine grew up in and made it two stories and expanded it. They're just going like crazy. The building, building, building. There's new wineries going in everywhere. Do you have blocks in your vineyard that you particularly like to work? Are there blocks that are sort of your favorite blocks? Oh, the Old West block is still one of my favorites. There's only uh, four acres left. Their vines were planted in 1970. They're old vines and don't produce much, but they still make a damn good wine. And then uh, the old river block, it's a nice block. Uh, William and Celia make a nice wine out of it. I imagine there's a lot of people asking you for fruit, right? Like a lot of people you haven't worked with before. Well, I have a, I have a list of 35 wineries that want my fruit. And I told them they'll never get it. You know, there's no way. How did you originally pick the people that you wanted to work with for buying your fruit? They picked me. Yeah. <laughs> I just got a you know a reputation early, and uh, everybody wanted my fruit. So I sell to Ramey, White Grapes, Gary Farrell, both, and William Sellium, both. What are vintages that have really stood out for you? Well, those vintages stood out because of bad things. Like 81, we got rains, ruined most of the Chardonnay. We had very little Chardonnay that was good. Most years, though, our fruit, we don't have too many bad years. You know, it's getting earlier and earlier. We used to pick in September, now we're picking in August. Red in August. Yeah, Pinot Noir. Still wine, fruit, is coming in earlier and earlier, seems like. Today, when you look back, what do you, you see as kind of your legacy for farming grape varieties in the Russian River in California? I had the idea of putting in varietals, and uh, I don't know if anybody else did, but I, I was determined. You know, it was tough for me to get past my dad, <laughs> And in my uncles, Sodini and Spraja and all the old-timers, you know, they had the old varieties. So I I, uh, I was determined to, to do varietals and make, you know, wines like the best in the world. That was my goal. And, I, you know, I sacrificed a lot to do that. You know, those guys, like I was hauling... Pinot Noir in and dumping it, getting three tons to the acre. And the guy next to me said, what the hell are you bringing that stuff in for that? He said, I'm getting 10 tons to the acre with this Gamay's here. And he used to call Gamay Pinot Noir. Has it surprised you how much Pinot Noir and Chardonnay have caught on in the Russian River Valley over the years? It's almost shocking. Yeah. It's not stopping. I see vineyards going in. You know, Sebastopol used to be all apples. Now it's all grapes. That's an area that's shocking. You hardly see an apple. It used to be all apples. 
What are you most proud of in your career? Uh, well, the grape growing and my athletic stuff, you know. Hit a lot of home runs. And uh, also, I, you know, I, that learn by doing. I, I built my own house. I did all my equipment. I rebuilt the engines. I welded everything and put everything together. In those days, there wasn't a lot of money. So you had to do, you know, I built all my own bins. I built, I built my hydraulic dumper. I built the first cane cutter in the county. I made a cane cutter. I told you the big brushy vines that we had down there. First year, I used a machete with four Mexicans. And it took them about four days to do it. Then I was found a sickle bar, and I put it on motor on it and a clutch. Put it on the front end of my old nine-end loader. And I went through and did it all one day the following year with a king cutter. I still have it. It's still in the yard over there. And I restored all my horse-drawn cultivators and plows. I restored them there in the barn upstairs. I got a buggy. My dad bought that buggy, and it's old. And I, I clean it up, and it's still got the original paint on it and everything. But we got robbed here about two years ago, and they stole the harness. But I was able to buy a harness for it, but it's not the same as the old one. It has stainless steel on the, you know, some parts of it. So kind of upset me. But anyway, my barn is a big barn, two stories, 60 by 60. And it's full. I just saved everything. <laughs> and I still have all my saddles. I have five saddles hanging in there. When I used to ride a lot, my dad rode and my uncle, you know, we were in a rode a lot in horses in those days. When those first started back in thirty seven we used to work the land with the, with mules. My dad had two beautiful mules, and my sister and I were only three or four years old. We used to run down the field at 5 o'clock, and then we'd get a ride back on the mules. So those are good old days. Joe Rocchioli Jr. built a house with his own hands that overlooked the vines that he planted. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Joe Rocchioli Jr. of J. Rocchioli Winery in the Russian River of California. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. This episode was made possible by the Sonoma County Vintners the leading voice of Sonoma County wine, dedicated to raising awareness of Sonoma County as one of the world's premier wine regions. Visit SonomaWine.com for more information. That's SonomaWine.com for more information. I just like to fix up old things. You know, that there was a, a house there. When my folks moved, it was uh, burned down before they moved there, but they remembered it. It was built in 1880.
Solomon Walters built it, a two-story Victorian, beautiful home, right where our tasting room entry is. And it burned down November 7th, 1930. But my folks remembered it. But what didn't burn down was the outhouse in the back of the house. So we moved it around for years and years and years and years. And finally, I said, you know what? I'm going to restore that thing. And I did. The beautiful outhouse. The three-holder, mama, papa, baby hole. (laughs) And I put all the same wood back. I pulled the square nails out, straightened them, took the boards, marked them all, put them back. The only thing I had to change was the, the bottom was rotting out. And I could buy the same lumber that they put in there. And then the roof was rotting out. So I put, instead of redwood, I used cedar, which just looks just like it. Shakes, just like it was. It has beautiful hinges on it. And it has a window. And I got it out there on cement next to the tasting room parking lot. 